This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, with a new year ahead, we put together some of our top interview moments of 2022. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. Today, we're looking back at some of the most impactful conversations we had throughout 2022. Keep watching. It really is about bringing a capability to the high-end fight. It really is about the Navy being able to continue to get access to where they need to get access and to really hold those higher um, level strategic targets at risk, which is what the United States Navy does as they forward deploy all around the world. The fact is that a lot of the initial research and development for 6G is taking place right now, including in China. So we have to have a proactive and prudent approach to these issues early on. So ultimately, we want to avoid a lot of the issues that we faced with the rollout of 5G. There's a lot of security concerns associated with that, and we can get ahead of these issues if we act now. As we look at diversity, equity, inclusion, um, a lot of times it starts at representation uh, because that seems to be the first thing. And it, it's an important part of it. However, um, if we only stay at representation and we don't get to full participation, uh, representation without participation is still exclusion. And what we want to drive is inclusion. What are the limitations of relying on technologies for intelligence as opposed to human uh, intelligence gathering? You know, the war in Ukraine really illustrates the point my book makes, that in this age of great power competition, where technology and disinformation so influence the battle space, that our need for human sources, for insiders who could tell us what's going on in the reality is more critical than ever. There is a bipartisan consensus in a way I have not seen in five years that we need to stand with Ukraine, that Putin is 100% wrong in an immoral, unprovoked war, that we need to do everything we can to provide aid to the Ukrainians, economic aid, that we need to take refugees, that we need to provide them with as many weapons as possible. Uh, and uh, I think the Congress is going to be committed to this uh, for as long uh, as, as it takes. You're going to hear me say a lot about the government being a model employer and how being the largest employer, how we need to really set uh, the standard expectations of how we want to um, see other employers show up and, and the kind of impact that we want. And this is exactly what we're doing here with our new voting guidance. It actually expands uh, opportunities for voting. So we know that elections aren't just taking place the day of election. It gives more time. It gives time off for early voting, also for the day of elections. And that's, that's a change here. So we want folks to be able to engage um, in their elections, all up and down local, state, federal. So that's a big piece of it, as well as the expansion of uh, leave for participating as a nonpartisan poll worker. So, and I think this speaks to, you know, federal government employees. They are committed to the civil service, committed to public service. I think, you know, are, are great participants in our democracy and we want to continue that. And I think this guidance sets the stage for how we want to engage in that, part, you know, encourage that participation. We want to remove barriers to voting. 
Uh, and again, we want to be able to set the, the standard for how we should be showing up as an employer. As CIO with that hat on, cybersecurity is my absolute top priority, ensuring the protection of our networks, systems, and data. Zero trust is a principle that posits that the enemy is already on the network somewhere. It is a paradigm shift. Now, it's one that's been underway here throughout the federal government private sector for a little while now. It's embodied in executive orders dating back to last year. But we here at the Department of Defense want to be a leader in the federal space on this to really move out with our very large enterprise with this new principle. And why is taking control of the Donbass region so strategically important to the Russians? I think it's really Putin trying to salvage something out of the wreckage of this disastrous war, because this war, no matter how this next phase ends, will be a disaster for Russia. We're seeing a number of miscalculations by President Putin. Uh, we're seeing his military being much less capable than I think he expected it to be. I think a lot of people expected it to be. Um, you're seeing a united NATO which is not something he expected either. And that's really, you know, the strength of integrated deterrence is about the strength of our alliances and the strategic partnerships we have around the world. And we're seeing the value of those play out right in front of us with NATO. We're also seeing the potential for great power aggression by a dictatorial author authoritarian state, which I think a lot of people had dismissed as a, you know, an artifact of history. It's not. And so that can happen in, uh, it can happen in Europe, it can happen in Asia. So I think it's a wake-up call for everybody about the seriousness of the, of the potential problems we face. So we've talked about Russian history. What does Western history say about how to win this war? We've got to gut this one out. And by that, I mean get the arms in there. And you've seen the Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense in there today. This is a matter of training. This is a matter of, of showing uh, that we're willing to put weaponry in there quickly. Uh, and, and also, frankly, sustain ourselves. I mean, we, this is going to be a long war. I think, you know, Americans are sort of like the idea of, well, we're going to get this over in 90 days. We'll bring the, hoops, the troops home by Christmas. That's all lovely, but that's not what this is about. This is a war of attrition, and we're really going to have to dig into this thing and continue to support and continue to support loudly and push hard because, frankly, unless the Russians see that, they're not going to back off. The Islamic State has been degraded in its core leadership in Iraq and Syria. That's certainly evident from the numerous U.S. counterterrorism operations and, of course, through our Syrian and Iraqi partners. But the challenge that we face is the Islamic State is growing in Afghanistan and across Africa. It's alive and well. So the purpose of the telescope, it's, it's a follow-on to Hubble, and Hubble has been around more than 30 years. It's brought us amazing science and images of our great universe. Uh, Webb is 100 times more powerful, if you could imagine that. So it's going to allow us to see deeper into the universe, uh, further back, a lot clearer, because we have infrared, so we can see through the smoke and gook of space. So it's going to show us the early formation of early stars, early galaxies, and the one, two, three hundred million years after the Big Bang. So, so are we so, really going to be able to look back and see, like, how the, the universe started? Uh, certainly not far after it started. And we'll be back with more 2022 highlights after the break. We're back with more Government Matters interview highlights from 2022. Well, the, the Army's undergoing what I would argue is the biggest transformation in 40 years. And I suggest that every 40 years, the Army has to transform and modernize. It did it right before 
uh, World War II and in the 1940s. We did it when I came in the Army in 1980, and now we're in 2020, and we're doing the same thing. And so it's not just new weapon systems, though that what, 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 what is what a lot of people are interested in, but it's new doctrine, multi-domain operations for us. It's new organizations, multi-domain task forces, the security force assistance brigades. We're changing how we train, taking advantage of the technology, but we're also developing uh, new weapon systems uh, along our six modernization priorities. We in the Department of Defense uh, for decades now have been trying to be extraordinarily responsible with taxpayer dollars and be extraordinarily safe when it comes to uh, cyber and, and other types of adversarial actions. Because of that, we are now slower than we'd like and we're much more risk averse than we'd like. And I think uh, the truth is that um, when you accept, uh, when you design your system uh, against the risk of you know, an enemy penetrating the system, for instance, uh, like a cyber resilience system, it becomes slower. And what you're doing at that point, and what we don't discuss enough, is you're accepting uh, the risk now of maybe not getting the best AI tools or not getting the best AI talent or the best AI system because you've now made your system so protected uh, against some of these other things. And so I, d I just think we need to do a better job of explicitly weighing those costs and benefits against each other. Your mission includes the phrase, quote, eradicating cyber threats. That's a strong word. I mean, isn't this really just a continuous cat and mouse game? It, it is, but that was a deliberate choice that we chose that word. We want people to really aspire to giving the adversary a bad day each and every day. And, and if you choose something less than eradicate, you're settling, right? You're not going to contest, you're not gonna push back, and you're not gonna take bold action to try to address the growing trends and threats. What does the future uh, of travel look like from TSA's perspective? I think this is really, really exciting because you know we really are at that point now where we talked a lot about you know wa walking at speed, you know, security at speed. As you're walking through the airport, you know, I think we're very close to being able to sort of screen people as they're walking incorporating biometrics, incorporating some of the CAT technology we talked about, the very front of the checkpoint um, with our CT technology, and then sort of underpinning all of that, uh, a secure, flexible infrastructure. We really do think we're pretty close to being able to screen at speed. A new generation of computers are being developed by scientists and technologists called quantum computers. They'll be able to do several types of calculations that are far beyond the ability of our current supercomputers to achieve things like scientific simulation, for example. But the most concerning of these, arguably, is that these new types of computers will be able to break virtually all of the encryption systems currently used to protect internet communications. First, I want to talk about sexual harassment and assault. Um, reports of both have increased over the, the recent years. Why is that? I think fundamentally we haven't looked at it from two perspectives. One is from prevention and then one is response. We have to have world-class response, but we really need to focus on prevention, <clears throat> and that way we'll see the numbers going down. We need world-class response, but most of our programs have been focused to the reaction to sexual assault. To truly get the numbers down, we have to focus on prevention, the environment, and making sure that we don't have these things in the first place. And I think that's where we're heading in the future. Of what I've seen in the time since I've graduated is the service continue to move forward, an increasing number of women's coming, coming into the service. We onboarded the class of 2026 at the Coast Guard Academy uh, not that long ago. 
43% women. My class was 5% women when I graduated, and I think that just speaks volumes uh, to the organization, uh, the commitment to providing uh, work that's valued and uh, in embracing all that people bring uh, in, in all of their diversity, and I'm really excited about it. How significant is this level of funding for oh my, the agency? Oh my gosh, this is an absolute game changer um, for everybody who lives in this country. If you think about the times through our history where we have invested substantially in infrastructure, think about building the canal system, thinking about building the railroad system, think about building the highway system. This is the kind of investment that this represents. In decades, there has not been this much invest investment. We always say, Mimi, that despite the fact that we're looking for 38,000 that we estimate to be recoverable, every single one of those 38,000 is, 38, is more than a number. Each one has a unique story that dates back and it's intergenerational. Family members know about their loved one. You may be talking to a third, second generation family member and it's as if you're talking to the grandmother. We very likely have to do a better job of getting people to understand that it isn't like mathematics when you're dealing where two plus two equals four in January, in April, and in August, no matter how you look at it, two plus two will always equal four. But when you're dealing with an evolution of an outbreak where things are changing before your very eyes, then you have to realize that things will change, including recommendations and guidelines. But you had also predicted Putin would lose. Yeah. How do you define losing, and do you still believe he, that? He's already lost. Mimi, he's already lost. So first remind us what the PACT Act is and what it means for veterans. So what this is is a, a new law that says if you served in Southwest Asia, so basically that big swath of uh, territory from Somalia in the Southwest to Uzbekistan in the Northeast, with Iraq and Afghanistan right in the middle, and you are exposed to toxins during that period, we now have a process where, whereby we'll assume that if you have a condition among the 25 or so conditions listed in that law, we will assume that you got that condition while you're serving overseas uh, in that region. And that means that you qualify for benefits and you qualify for care. Up next, the rest of our interview highlights from 2022. Don't go anywhere. We're sharing a collection of some of the best interview conversations we had in 2022. Take a look. You said this, uh, for 75 years, CDC and public health have been preparing for COVID-19. And in our big moment, our performance did not reliably meet expectations. What happened? You know, we have a 76 year history at CDC and yet we've never had to tackle a global pandemic, one that addressed and, and met almost every single one of 330 million Americans. We haven't had to tackle, while we've been tackling public health challenges for, for decades, we have never had to tackle one of the size, scope and scale of COVID-19. So we have many successes that I think we could talk about, but I think also many challenges. And so what we wanted to do with this review um, is to really understand understand where we needed to be more nimble, where our systems and our processes got in the way of our being as nimble as we needed to be during COVID-19, and then to, you know, uh, address those issues um, and really become the agency that we need to be for the future of public health. 
But how do you know what uh, the skills that you're going to be needing for a future conflict are? I think it's pretty clear. I mean, I think sometimes we don't appreciate the skills we already have. I've got children still in high school. Actually, one just started college and one's in high school. Those that can do this, this is probably the world that we live in now, right? You and I grew up in maybe a different world. So we already have a sort of a set, set, set of skills that are already needed. The world is more digital. We use systems as much as we use our, just our, our physical presence on the battlefield now. So we're looking for those technical skills. In general, what's the significance of this Artemis mission? What does it really mean to you? Well, as we approach the 50th anniversary of the last Apollo mission, Apollo 17, it's been more than 50 years since we've been to the moon, or it's approaching that. So uh, this mission is actually uh, about something very different than Apollo. We are creating a blueprint for humans to do science and exploration throughout the solar system. And we're going to practice it on the moon, and then we're gonna go execute it on Mars and in other destinations. So this time we're going to stay and to do science. And Artemis One is just the beginning. So Al-Qaeda and ISIS remain intent on attacking the United States. I think we've done a really good job as the United States government in making ourselves a harder target over the last 20 years. Um, but we have to keep our eye on the ball. And so we're going to stay focused on those terrorist threats, even as we see these evolving challenges here domestically in the homeland, uh, dealing with lone actors and otherwise. Uh, but we cannot let the terrorist threat evolve in ways that go faster than the United States government can keep up with, and so we're here to make sure that doesn't happen. Mr. Ambassador, I wonder what you've learned so far watching this war unfold. What have you learned about Russia? What have you learned about Ukraine? Uh, Russia has uh, crossly uh, miscalculated and uh, uh, mismanaged uh, uh, this, this war. Uh, as uh, the saying goes, they have strategically uh, already lost a uh, long time ago this war. They certainly have underestimated uh, 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 the West, but most importantly, they have underestimated uh, uh, Ukraine and the Ukrainian uh, resilience. Now, uh, uh, when it comes to uh, Ukraine again, uh, they've been uh, proven to be uh, really tough warriors, but they've, they've also be, uh, uh, proven to be uh, very uh, flexible and resi resilient as a society. And uh, uh, we believe that uh, democratic, free, resilient societies will always prevail uh, the authoritarian regimes. So you write in a recent piece uh, about the report that, quote, we are tending towards overhyping the Chinese threat. What do you mean? Well, I think China is our most consequential strategic competitor. That's a phrase that's sometimes employed in recent documents like the National Security Strategy. The National Defense Strategy that also came out this fall talks about China as the pacing challenge. I agree with all that. China certainly has the scientific and technological and industrial base and the size of a military budget that makes it the number one challenge for us. And there are some goals that are incompatible in their foreign policy and ours, especially over Taiwan, South China Sea. However, I don't know that China's trying to upside down, turn over the world order the way that Vladimir Putin is right now. They're not using lethal military force as a rule, although there have been a couple of exceptions that are troubling. Uh, and to my mind, uh, this is a rising power that is behaving sort of like a rising power. And we're going to have to accept that that's going to pose some challenges to us, but not overreact. We want Paul Holm 
just as much as his family wants him home. And I can tell you that right up until the moment that the president decided to execute the deal, boot for Griner, we were still in that moment trying to see if we could maneuver a way to get Paul out too, to get both of them out. The problem, Mimi, is that the Russians treat Mr. Whalen differently. They levied some sham espionage charges against him. They put him in a different category than what they would consider other criminals. Uh, and so there just was no way to get both of them out for Mr. Boot. But over these last weeks and months, we've learned a lot about the Russian position. We've learned a lot about how especially they sort of categorized Mr. Whalen. So uh, that gives us context and information to try to pursue these negotiations, uh, uh, hopefully in a more fruitful way going forward. And those negotiations are ongoing. And that's a wrap. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. Send us your comments on LinkedIn. You can follow us at Government Matters Media. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gargis. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be 
predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.